Welcome to, and can you believe it, episode 20 of The Agents Angle with me, Jonathan Booker. And me, Peter Paleologus. No, I can't believe it, Jonathan. On this episode of The Agents Angle, we look at the scrutiny of another big English Premier League club in regards to agent matters and the use of unlicensed agents. And if you thought unlicensed agents were unwelcome, there is news of the unwelcome aspects of European politics seemingly stirring up the agents' world. And there's also a look at bonuses, the impact they have on players, clubs, and of course agents in the past, the present, and maybe the future. All that to come on this episode of The Agents' Angle. Now, looking at my notes for this episode, Peter, I think there should be a public health warning for yourself and the listeners. Because looking at the topics we're going to cover, I think my soapbox is going to need reinforcing and I think some of the sentiments this week may well prompt similar feelings from those listening. Yes, we have a variety of topics and issues we're discussing today. It's a chance to discuss an important topic in terms of one of the key areas of agents when they negotiate player contracts, as well as how the European Union laws or policy may affect outcomes of European court hearings on agent fees and football agents regulations. So some really hot topics. Yeah. And on last week's episode, we looked at a breaking story involving a big English Premier League club and an investigation into alleged irregular payments regarding agents. And as time goes on, it develops further in regards to player contracts and agents this time. So we're going to park Chelsea for this week and see how that story develops as more information comes out. However, another week, another club and irregularities in regards to agents. And it's another English Premier League club. It's Tottenham Hotspur this time. But it doesn't appear to be so simple to say the club is the sole guilty party here. As there seems to be accusations not just levied, if you pardon the pun, at Spurs, but also the player, a licensed agent, an unlicensed agent, the manager of another club, which I think was the selling club at the time, if reports are to be believed. You can't sanction the player or manager implicated from 15 years ago, as they are both now supposedly retired. Neither can you sanction the unlicensed agent at the time. And to use the FA's long-standing catchphrase here, what do you do about unlicensed agents? Well, we can't do anything as they're unlicensed. Jonathan, I agree with you in terms of the way you narrated that. How do you prosecute and investigate something that is very old? I admit I'm a big fan of Ange Postacoglu, another Australian. But leave that aside. The current players, the staff at Tottenham, have nothing to do with this. This is 15 years old. The article we're focused on here is revealed. Spurs and Defoe appeared to break agent rules, but FA did nothing Matt Lawton, The Times, 21 November 2023. A spokeswoman for the FA said in this article, the case was heard by an independent arbitration panel 15 years ago. The FA was not a party to the arbitration. It is unclear how much information was shared with the FA at the time and no disciplinary action was taken. If there is new evidence which was not available at the time and which suggests serious breaches of our rules took place, we will review it. Now, there's two things for me to keep in mind here, Peter. 
The first is the role of the FA, the English Football Association, in all of this. It appears from reports they were aware of reported breaches in this case and the subsequent Rule K arbitration on a dispute relating to the matter. But it seems no action was taken. And yes, we're talking about Rule K again. The FA are reportedly claiming they didn't receive the ruling and relevant information from the Rule K arbitration. Now, the FA are reportedly claiming they didn't receive the ruling and all the relevant information from the Rule K arbitration. Now, I accept arbitrations are largely confidential, much like mediation, unless the parties agree to disclose or it's in somebody else's interest. But this is an FA-specified process. And it was my understanding that the FA, in such processes, if it was a breach of a regulatory matter arising from such an arbitration process, they would be made aware of it. And if it was in the interest of other participants within football, the matters of a rule K are published in some of the cases. Now, to top it all off, as you pointed out in the statement from the FA spokeswoman, they will only reinvestigate should they be provided with all of the information from the Royal K. So what's changed from it being confidential to it now not being confidential? And the other thing, as we've already pointed out, what on earth are people expecting to happen after 15 years after the event? Firstly, which regulations apply? Second, do FIFA get involved, as it seems to be a member association partly at fault in not upholding the FIFA regulations at the time? And then again, which regulations apply from a FIFA aspect? Who do you sanction and how? Possibly the club exec alleged to be involved, maybe the licensed agent, as that licensed agent who is alleged to be involved in this case is actually registered on the FIFA platform when I checked earlier today. And they're likely to be an FA registered intermediary as well. The manager and the player, as I said, they're supposedly retired. So what you're going to do there, I do not know. Could you impose a 10-point penalty on the club that season, which would take them from 11th to 17th? I think it's the 2007-2008 season. And they would escape relegation on goal difference. And then you redistribute the monies for the places in the Premier League to the other clubs effective. Now, the next thing is something I was told in the past by someone quite senior in the FA with agent regulatory responsibilities. And it was probably around 2015 that I was told this. They said they wouldn't sanction retrospectively on old regulations. Now, maybe that's correct. Then again, it might be another excuse and one of many, I have to admit. For me, the FA arguably did a better job on agent regulations and were more professional and conscientious back then than they have been since, especially since 2015. So heaven knows what's going to be unearthed from similar cases. I personally know of similar matters that seem to have been conveniently left to one side when they've been reported. And they've happened since that time. And I'm sure many others have similar experiences. Dare I say on so many things, the FA need an open investigation. David and Mr Bullingham, if you're listening. And whilst we're on it, things have gone quiet on investigating that second FIFA agents exam in Birmingham. There was meant to be a report on that and what went wrong. We know some in the agents, player status and financial regulation divisions of the FA listen in. They told me a couple of weeks ago. Now, maybe they will do something. Fingers crossed. Firstly, let me make it clear, nothing alleged against the foe, who's listed in that article. just want to make that clear. 
At the end of the day, agents who are regulated want a fair playing field going forward, and they want a fair playing field in terms of the business going back. They want consistent application of the rules and regulations, and one of the banes of a lot of agents was the unlicensed activity. However, going back to this article, it's an arbitration and it can be kept confidential if it's agreed by the parties, and the FHA is aware of that. On a general level, most regulators, and in this case would be the FA, would not investigate this type of unlicensed conduct that far back. Firstly, very hard to get recollection from witnesses. Secondly, the veracity and the unfounded access to evidence is very difficult 15, 16, 17 years back. Very hard to trace funds. And we know unlicensed agents have been in existence for a long time and nothing was done about it. Further, a lot of those regulations far back didn't have the onus like they do now. We know the FFAR, the FIFA Football Agent Regulations, and if they apply in England down the track, there's more of an onus on players and there's much more of an onus on clubs in dealing with regulated agents. That may have not been the case back then. I think the Football Association is stringing a long bow here. If I was Tottenham, I would defend these allegations vigorously and seek a discontinuance of this process. It's too old. And there are a lot of unclear variables, and it was subject to an arbitration. Yes, going forward and under the FIFA football age regulations, or I'm sure that what are regulations are going to apply in England after the Rule K arbitration, that unlicensed issues will be better dealt with. But then again, a lot of agent regulatory matters have been swept under the carpet for 15 years anyway. Now, suffice to say, what appears to be failings again from the FA, the English Football Association, football in the UK, in England, is now looking at an independent football regulator. For me, the mixing of politics with football and sport in general is right when it is limited, done for the right reasons and done in the right way. But there are times when football should be a politics-free zone. So we now have reported to us a couple of weeks ago the combination of two unwanted spectres. One, politicians and politics. And two, yes, I'm going to say it, we aren't even, what, 15 minutes into the show? FFAR, the FIFA Football Agent Regulations. Now, we know all too well the FFAR have found themselves exposed to the legal system with rulings in Germany and Spain, as well as cases elsewhere. And we covered those in depth in the last couple of weeks. And ultimately, some of these may well end up at the ECJ, the European Court of Justice. However, it appears we have some European politicians, to use the phrase, sticking their beaks in on the matter of agent regulations. When previously, around the time 2015 when FIFA deregulated, they felt it wasn't their place to interject. So with that in mind, I want to turn to an article I came across a couple of weeks ago, and it was from Politico from the 31st of October by Ali Walker, who I believe is a Scottish journalist, and it's entitled EU Commission Supports FIFA in Row with Football Agents. Subheading, Brussels delivers blow to agents by supporting cap-on fees as dispute heads for EU's top court. Now, for those of the agents community with a nervous disposition, this article seems very, very heavily FIFA-weighted. Some may even think they even wrote it themselves as a press release if they didn't know otherwise. Now, the three extracts I'm going to highlight, the first one is... The European Commission is backing FIFA's attempt to regulate the world's top agents. Now, this first line pretty much sums up the problem here with this article and the narrative that's coming out. 
because it isn't just the world's top football agents that the FFA are affecting. It's affecting a vast proportion of others in different ways, but also very significantly and very detrimentally. The second extract reads... The Commission's legal service said the defendant has plausibly pointed out that very high agency commissions, which are decoupled from the cost of consideration, create a strong incentive to exert massive influence on the players, in particular in order to force an early transfer. Now, my basic legal comprehension, Peter, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, is that the amount of consideration is not a legal judgment. The amount of consideration is to be agreed between the two parties, whether it be a player and an agent, a club and an agent, and it is quite possible that one of those parties might say no to the consideration as part of that contractual agreement and negotiation. And if it was the case that consideration fell under this, shouldn't all transfers of players be looked at in a similar way to deciding a transfer fee, if not actually the player's salary, as those fees are decoupled from the cost of consideration as well? One club may see more value in a player than another club. They may offer more on the transfer. They may offer that the player a higher salary. That is just the way the business works. And the third extract is regarding the ban on agents representing the player, the buying club and the selling club in the same deal. The commission said this regulation also appears suitable to combat that potential conflict of interest. Now, if they were so precious on this, they would surely look at any form of dual representation, including the permitted dual representation in the FFAR. As I said, this article seems very biased, very one-sided. But the important thing is that there's actually a response to the question in regards to this report from the vice president. And this reads, the commission is not in a position to publicly take a position on matters raised before the CJEU at this stage. Now, for me, if they're not in a position to publicly take a position, why are they taking a position? It seems very, very strange. Now, I follow this quite some way back, and there's a lot of reports going into this whole subject and being used. One of them may well be the Pace report by George Fuchs, who I believe is a Scottish peer. And I watched Mr. Fuchs's presentation on the matter to the European Commission, and I think his report may well be some of the weight behind this recommendation and this so-called support for FIFA. But the PACE report missed a lot of key points to be considered on FFAR, and they were quite clear. And I was told by Mr. Fuchs and his department that he had made his observations and he wouldn't be changing his view, even after various problems and misconceptions were highlighted to them. So as I said, this report seems very one-sided, very weighted towards FIFA. These are interesting pronouncements that the Commission has taken, as you said, backing FIFA's attempt to regulate the world's top football agents. However, there were a couple of other more considered and I would say balanced articles from Kicker in Germany, Kicker being a periodical and a website on German football. And there was two articles, one being FIFA partial success in billion dollar dispute with player agents. EU Commission confirms commission caps. It was by Benny Hoffman, 31st October 2023. The commission 
is saying here the European Commission doesn't agree with the judges sort of ruling that the FIFA football regulations constitutes some sort of hard court cartel. There's an injunction at that court case, as we know, one of the German injunctions, but the commission is differentiating its view in this article. Now, that's this first article. So it looks like the EU is taking a policy or certain objectives may agree with FIFA. And that obviously may influence down the track the European Court of Justice because it's saying here that it doesn't agree entirely with the Dortmund Court. The other article, and I'm not going to go back too much into it, it's basically expert attacks EU commission, cowardly is the term used, according to the pro-FIFA brief on the advisor rules. And this article is also from Benny Hoffman, 1st of November 2023. And in this article, European Union View has received a very interesting rebuke from a European Football Association agent official. And to discuss these articles in greater detail and the seeming interjection and recommendations made by the European Commission to the ECJ, we are pleased to welcome onto the agent's angle the agent representative interviewed in the latter kicker article, Gregor Reiter. Gregor was the managing director of the German Football Agents Association until 2020. And if I am correct, actually founded the association back in 2007. And he now serves as counsel on the board of EFA, the European Football Agents Association. He's a regular guest lecturer and publisher of articles for various universities around the world and received his doctorate examining player transfer regulations since the momentous Bosman ruling, as well as being a specialised sports lawyer at Wimper Attorneys since 2017. He was also, in 2023, appointed as a member of the first of the new FIFA agent working group. Gregor, welcome to the show. And I hope your introduction was accurate. Thanks, Jonathan. Very accurate. Yes, thank you very much. Well, that's nice to hear. <laughs> thank you, Gregor, for coming on to the show. We really appreciate it. I just want to get straight into it. And as Jonathan mentioned, a couple of articles from Kicker. Mm-hmm. There was an initial article by Kicker on the 20th of November entitled FIFA Partial Success in Billion Dollar Dispute with Player Agents. In your opinion, what are the specific points that they are referring to in the Kicker article as where FIFA succeeded and where challenges still remain for FIFA in regard to agent regulations? Well, Peter, that article that you're mentioning refers to a statement from the European Commission that they made in favor of the new FIFA agent regulations. And it's in in a couple of ways, it is misleading because, first of all, it is not part of the legal battle. The EU Commission is part of the executive uh, organs of the European Union and not part of the legislative, uh, the judicative organs of the European Union. So they don't have anything to do with any legal battle. And secondly, to understand the relationship between FIFA and the European Union, you must understand that FIFA has for many, many, many years remained a stir presence in Brussels and has been lobbying, especially the European Commission, for many, many years in their favor. So saying that is a partial success in the legal battle that's wrong and also saying that is the opinion of the European Commission that is also wrong. That might be the opinion of some, but it's for certain not the opinion of the European Commission. There actually was a second article on the 20th of November 2023 entitled Experts Attacks the EU Commission Yeah, and in brackets cowardly. Yeah. You were quoted in this article where you critique the EU Commission. Could you briefly share more details on your primary concerns about the Commission's comments and how you were quoted in this article? 
Yes, of course. As we know, there are legal battles concerning the FIFA football agents regulations in various countries. And one German court, the District Court of Mainz, has already sent the case to the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg. And my concern is that the European Commission, as part of the executive organ of the European Union, has no part whatsoever in either criticizing or pointing a way in an ongoing legal battle. Uh, the dispute concerning the, the FIFA football agent regulations has been presented to the court and is now left to the courts to decide that it is not part of the political body of the European Union to comment on that. And by having done so, in my eyes, they have actually infringed with the independence of the court system. And that was one of the reasons why I called them cowardly and the other reason why I called them cowardly. If they so believe that that is all true, what FIFA is doing, then go to parliament and make a law. But the reason why they're not doing that and rather having the battle played out in court is because they fear the price they have to pay politically for that. It could very well be that if they try to push a law through parliament or through the European parliament, they would lose or that that law, again, is being challenged in national courts. And it would pretty much underline that not even the European Commission is above the law. The Kika article suggests that the legal dispute with FIFA revolves also around solidarity contributions, which we know relate to transfer of players and payments to clubs. Could you explain this concept and why it has become a point of contention? Because it seems a little bit odd it to is. talk about solidarity contributions when we're talking about agents' regulations. You're absolutely right, Peter. It is odd. And it's actually the legal battle does not revolve around the solidarity mechanism in the FIFA transfer status. But FIFA has always used the solidarity payments as an argument to curtail the agent fees. They've always said... It can't be that the agent fees that are being paid by far outweigh the solidarity payments. Well, one has nothing to do with the other. If FIFA wants more solidarity payment, they can simply raise the number from 5% to 7.5 or 10 or whatever they seem fit. But they are comparing apples with purse and using that argument in court, trying to dilute what the real problem is behind the FIFA football agents regulation. And that is the fact that a fee cap is actually an infringement on the rights of the agent and by no means something that a private regulator such as FIFA is legitimized to do. Gregor, you and I have known each other, and Peter's known you as well, going back many, many years. And for people who don't know you, you're actually one of the more reasoned and sensible voices in the agents community and looking at agent regulation. Thank you, John. <laughs> <laughs> you can pay me later, don't yeah, worry I'll about do. <laughs> that. But then again, we'll have to declare it to FIFA. So we, we might avoid that one for this time. Um, so to use the word FIGA... And as Peter says, the translator's cowardly. That was quite a surprise for me, but it shows the frustration that quite a few people have had in this process. But with regards to the European Commission, they were involved historically back in 2015 and before that. They did have things to say then. They were involved in discussions. What role do you see, if any, for the European Commission in the regulation of football agents? And how does this tie into the broader legal landscape in Europe and the world? There's two roles that they could play. One, as outlined before, is they could simply regulate the business for the European Union or try to regulate it, which would then eventually have to be done by the European Parliament. Or 
which probably would be better, they could try to act as a mediator between the various stakeholders within the football industry. That would, of course, mean that, first of all, the agents would have to be recognized as stakeholders within the industry, especially by FIFA. And that is what I'm a bit concerned about after the commission published their opinion on the new agent regulations, is whether or not they are still objective in this course, or if they have not fallen into the trap that FIFA so cleverly laid out by raising arguments that have actually nothing to do with the agent business. I believe that the football world in itself should be strong enough to regulate the agents sensibly by themselves without the help of any political bodies. Because from my experience, getting political bodies involved, whether it's the European Union or German Parliament or any parliament, for that matter, always makes things worse and usually not better. As I've referred to there, some people aren't aware that this debate has gone on back to 2013-2014. And you and I and other agent representatives were asking for the European Commission and other European bodies to interject when FIFA abandoned or scrapped the old agent regulations and license. You were more directly involved in discussions than I was back then. What was the response of the European Commission pre-2015 when this was on the cards that we were going to lose the agent's license and the agent regulations as were? So what was their response back then? And what do you think has prompted this change in their approach? Well, as far as I remember, back in early 2010 years, when it was discussed that the agent regulation needed to be reformed, the European Union pretty much did serve as a mediator between the various stakeholders. I remember being present at some of the roundtables that the European Union organized in Brussels. To be frank, none of them served to be very helpful for various reasons. So when FIFA finally did abolish the agent regulations in 2015, it was actually the European Football Agents Association, which was the first one to voice their concern and said, this is a step in the absolute wrong direction. And back in 2015, we predicted the chaos that eventually came out of that deregulation. And as far as I remember, the European Union really didn't do much back then. They simply accepted the fact that FIFA decided to abolish the agent regulation, and that was it. There was no, after 2015, after the abolishment of the agent regulation, up until just recently, as far as I remember, there was no... Might There might have been one, no, there was one meeting that we had in Brussels. I remember that. That must have been early 2016, it must have been in May or something like that because it was really, really hot. We were sitting in a room up in the attic, 16 people, very high-ranking people from all over the football in Europe to members of the European Commission that really didn't have any clue about what football really was and how football business worked. So my last memory of them is, uh, yeah, they, they weren't very helpful. Yeah, I seem to recall the general feedback that I got is that the attitude was that they didn't feel it was their place to interject, which is quite surprising now that we're seeing this interjection and these recommendations. So it's a big shift. Now, drawing on your legal expertise, the various media reports around this subject is that the European Commission is backing most parts of FFAR. What's your view on this? And will this affect the German cases, one with an injunction, one without, that have now been referred to the ECJ? Well, and as far as the German cases are concerned, in the one where the, the injunction was granted, which is the Dortmund case, that has been appealed. And the appeal will be heard in court on uh, January 24th, on the appellant court in Dusseldorf. And I can vouch for German courts. They don't like it when politics interfere with ongoing legal processes. They really don't care, especially the German federal Supreme Court is very outspoken when it comes to that. 
once a case has reached the realm of the courts, they basically very bluntly tell the politics, stay out of it. This is our job. Um, and as far as the European Court of Justice is concerned, it's very, very hard to predict um, what the ECJ will actually have to say with regard to the FFAR. One interesting judgment that is coming up will be the Super League judgment on December 21st. And I'm certain that you can take from that judgment how the court may lean when it comes to the agent regulations. But again, I'm a bit more concerned with the ECJ because the ECJ, unlike the German Supreme Court, does take political opinions into consideration. Yes, they look at policy and public interest and a lot of other political concepts. Gregor, I recall that we were at the Bundesliga and the German FA Conference on Age and Regulations in Frankfurt several years ago. I think you're part of the organising committee prior to when the yep. introduction of the regulations in working with intermediaries came in. It seems back then there was some attempt by the German FA and the Bundesliga to understand the impact of the intermediary changes. So there was a round table, there was discussion, there was presentations. How do you foresee the relationship between football agents now and governing bodies evolving in the future, particularly in light of these legal battles that we've seen in Spain, in Germany, now the ECG, and obviously ongoing regulatory discussions? Well, I mean, for my personal opinion, I don't think any legal battle on the questions of substance as the one we're faced here should have any impact on the relationship between organizations. I mean, obviously, the Asians aren't happy with being presented by a fee cap. There are lots of lots of legal questions around it. Spanish court and a German court have actually ruled in favor of the agents. And in a country that is governed by the rule of law, it is our right to take a problem, an open legal question to the court. So it should not have any influence on the relationship between the agents and the national FAs. With FIFA, I don't know. FIFA tends to be, let's put it that way. FIFA sometimes wonders why they are subject to courts. That is at least the feeling that I get. They view themselves as the world governing body of football, which they may or may not be. And from the statements that I've read and heard after the decision of the Court of Arbitration for Sport in July, uh, for them, the cust judgment is the only relevant judgment because according to FIFA, the Court of Arbitration for Sport is the only world sport court so I don't know how the judgments of the ordinary courts will influence uh, the relationship between FIFA and the agents. But on the other hand, the question really is if there has ever been a relationship between FIFA and the agent over the past years, or if the talks that have been held with FIFA since 2018 weren't simply meant to play the agents and to calm them and do whatever they want to do. I mean, FIFA to do whatever FIFA wants to do. Yeah, the major cases are in Europe. I mean, I'm based outside of Europe, Asia, Australia. And I speak to a lot of colleagues in Africa, in South America, North America, and everyone's concerned about the caps. In your view, what are the most crucial aspects of the football agent regulations that have been brought in that need attention and refinement? Yeah. And I don't just mean the caps, which is obviously fundamental, but other areas that you're concerned about. There's two areas that I'm actually even more concerned about than with the fee caps. First, Article 13, which calls for the clearinghouse system. I myself have a problem with entrusting millions and millions of dollars to an organization that in itself is extremely intransparent. 
The second huge problem with the agent regulations is the fact that, let's assume for a second that, that these agent regulations will actually come into force that the ECJ says, well, they're all fine. FIFA has no chance whatsoever to enforce them. Zero. Because they lack the knowledge of how the agent industry really works. They lack the capacity of actually enforcing them. In order to enforce these regulations, what FIFA would need to do is they would need to open up a sort of district attorney's office within the FIFA organization. They would probably need at least 50 to 100 people in that organization. And that department would need to be run by people that actually understand how transfers work and where to look for. And there's absolutely no chance they're going to do that. What will happen is, in combination with the clearinghouse, obviously the clearinghouse will always only show that of every certain deal, 6% of 10% or whatever is the, the, the cap fee, that that has been paid. So Infantino will walk out and say, see, I drained the swamp. It worked. It's only 6 or 10% that are being paid. Here are the numbers from the clearinghouse. What they don't understand is that from the angle that I have as an agent, what has always happened in the past, clubs and agents will find ways around it. In, from a Premier League's point of view, it's actually fairly easy to find a way around these regulations because um, the Premier League clubs, unlike the German Bundesliga clubs, are owned privately. And what stops the owner of any Premier League club of not paying the agent for some consultancy that he did? And that payment will be completely outside the control of FIFA. So in the end, if these agent regulations come into force and they are not properly being enforced, which I don't see happening right now, they basically will lead to more intransparency within the market. And the goals that FIFA tries to reach, they will not be able to reach those goals with these regulations. We were both at the European Football Agent Association General Assembly, and obviously we can't talk too much about it because it's a confidence meeting with different delegates from different agent associations. But how did you read the room where obviously Germany, you've got the injunction, the Spanish decision was just announced, but this coming window, which is the, probably the first transfer window that the regulations are going to apply, the national football agent regulations as well, for the countries that have got them in place. How did you read the room in the sense that is there a disadvantage in certain markets compared to others now? Do the agents feel like it's not a fair playing field because certain countries it don't apply, others do? How did you feel from the peers and the other delegates how these agent regulations are being implemented and, and the impact on their businesses? I mean, if you look at the upcoming window in January, I think both the German and the Spanish market will have an advantage. So everybody is looking for that link to Germany um, in order to circumvent the enforced regulations in other markets. From the agent's position, however, I have the feeling that currently it doesn't matter so much when you're a Dutch agent or a French agent or an Italian agent. It doesn't matter whether the Spanish or the Germans are the ones that actually stop the FFAR as long as somebody does. So within the big five leagues, I think both the Spanish and the German decision have been welcomed by all the other agents as well, despite the fact that the Germans and the Spanish will have an advantage in January. However, the interaction between the different agents has risen since I joined back in 2007. I think the market has become much more international, especially when you look at the mega agents they can easily establish a German link. So for them, it doesn't matter which country actually stops the FFAR as long as one does. Now, the question that I've been asked most recently and most often is, when will we get a decision on the rule K in England? 
But there is one question that's been asked over the last couple of weeks and if not months by many people across the agents world and the football world. And with you being an expert on the German football industry and the agents industry in Europe and around the world, can you briefly just explain to me and to everybody else what your interpretation and understanding of a link to Germany as stated by FIFA um, that's a very good question. I mean, because um, within their statement, they said that everybody or that Germany is exempt from the regulation and that Germany means everybody who has a link to the German market. And then they forgot to explain what a link to the German market actually is. Now, I think we can all agree that it's probably more than just owning a German shepherd. But the question really is, is it enough? For example, if a player moves from Feyenoord to RC Anderlecht, is it enough if the Dutch agent, for example, agrees with the Belgium club that the agent agreement will be governed by German law? Is that enough to establish a link to the German market? Now, from my understanding, no. Because if you look at what truly is a link to the German market is obviously if you deal with the German club, whether it's bringing a player into a German club or away from a German club, that is clearly a link to the German market. Is it enough if the player is a German national? So take a German player playing in the Premier League from Arsenal to Chelsea or vice versa. I don't know. From an agent's point of view, what definitely is enough is if you deal through a German entity. So you either have a subsidiary that is based in Germany that has a business address, and I'm not talking about a shell company, but has a clear business address in Germany. And if that entity then actually engages with the German address, with the German taxpayer identity, then engages into an agent agreement with the club, that should be enough to establish a link to the German market from the agent's point of view. Again, simply agreeing on German jurisdiction, simply having a German citizen being the player, being the object of the transfer agreement, if I may say so, I don't think that's enough. So from an agent's point of view, I would suggest go through your address book and give those long lost German friends a call. You might need them in the January window. That's brilliant, Gregor. Thank you very much for that. Thank you very much for your time in joining us. It's been great talking to you and getting your expert insights on everything to do with Germany and also that European Commission intervention. Hopefully we'll have some clarity in the future. So thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been my pleasure to be on your show today. Thank you so much. It's always interesting to hear what Gregor has to say, especially on European matters regarding the agent's world and the legal aspects of it. And I think it just highlights what we try to point out on the show in the amount of misinterpretation, miscommunication and politics demonstrated by some of the topic of FFAR and agent regulations, which affects many people, not just agents. And those peddling this politics are largely unaffected by it. Also, as we try to point out repeatedly, is that the FAFAR is not just a European issue. It is an issue affecting world football. And comments like the one we heard attributed to a lawyer at SoccerX last week on one of the panels where the topic of FFAR was discussed of outside of Europe, there is really not much outrage at the regulations. It is really a European issue for now. Quotes like that do not help. Yes, Europe is where the money is in football, but how much football talent do the likes of Africa and South America create and develop for the European football market? How much of the global football audience is in Asia, Oceania 
and the Americas, and thus the driving forces for much of the TV and advertising revenues that flow into European football. Plus, where is much of the recent investment in European football coming from? Arguably, the Middle East and North America. I just want to make two points there. Firstly, there is outrage in Asia, especially about the fees, outrage across the world in terms of the commission caps, the fees that have been implemented. They're just too low. And as I said before, the football landscape is shifting. And in due course, Asia, which has continued to grow, becoming more of a power. And we've seen that in Saudi now, which is pivoting towards that change. But yeah, very interesting analysis and observations by Gregor. I think he sort of highlighted the whole sort of EU, but also the German link very, very well and really provided some really important insights for our listeners. Now, we're going to lighten up, get away from the EU policy and legal and the politics of it all. As we mentioned last week, we are taking a break from the NFAR, the National Football Agent Regulations, as matters seem to have stalled, as various injunctions are in place. Not as many new National Football Agent Regulations have been released. We are pivoting to something else, and this is performance bonuses for players. Now, I've separated the bonuses into three categories, individual, key performance indicator bonuses, team bonuses, and some unique bonuses that have existed in player contracts anecdotally. I'll start from the top, and that is the individual bonuses that most football player contracts see. In the first one, the appearance bonus is about receiving an appearance fee, and bonus are inserted in terms of increasing the weekly salary once a certain number of first-team starts have been made by the player. That's pretty specific and it's payable on specific dates and for a specific amount of money. So appearance bonus, how many appearances? First team appearance, of course, I'm talking about. The second one for individuals that is popular or is becoming maybe less popular because maybe it can be manipulated is the goal bonus. Some clubs don't like it as not incentivizing team play. However, for strikers, to negotiate a goal bonus is very, very important because that is one of the strengths where they can monetize more money and add value to their contract. So it still exists, especially in Asia. The other one, the assist bonus. And these are very valuable for particular players, especially midfielders or even wingers, because they don't score as many goals, but provide a lot of assists. And we see a lot of the stats present that are very important for certain players to generate more income. We know the, the other bonus is the clean sheet bonus for goalkeepers and defenders. How many zeros during the year? That's how many bonuses each time a zero amount, no goals are scored. The other one that's interesting is the loyalty bonus. And this exists in a lot of countries, it existed in Spain, across Europe, and it really relies on players receiving loyalty bonus on specified dates in the future if they still stay with the club. We see a lot of movement with players around in the transfer market. However, the loyalty bonus for some players, it is an important bonus. The other one that I want to focus on in terms of individual is the squad list and team sheet bonus. This is mainly focused on substitute or younger players. So it may be if you're a substitute, you may get 30% of the team bonus or the individual bonus or it's for younger players, so an agent can incorporate a squad list or a team sheet bonus for younger players who may have not broken as a starter in the first team, but are on the bench. And we know there's more substitutes now. There's much more positions. Much more players can come on, and they can be rewarded for not just being named on the team sheet, but also in the squad or even playing. 
So that I think is very important for a savvy agent to try to incorporate, especially for younger players. The other one is the salary increase type bonus where less established players or those coming from abroad who haven't proven their track record at a club, they can get an increase during the year, a bonus increase, if they make a certain competitive first team match starts during the year. So that sort of like is an incentive to increase their salary as the season progresses. Now I want to focus briefly on team bonuses, and these are based on key performance indicators for the whole team. We've got the win-draw bonus, which is any wins, you share a pool of money, also draws in the season are shared amongst all the players, depending on obviously if they're playing or they're a substitute. The other one is the achievement bonus, I want to call it. It's where a team wins promotion as a group, they win a league cup, and this additional bonus is what will be shared amongst the full squad based on appearances. And there are other sort of similar bonuses, team bonuses, for example, qualifying for the Champions League. We've seen that with Newcastle United in England, where an annual bonus sheet was created, where if they make the Champions League, all players to an annual bonus, and that's shared amongst the players. Now, I just want to go into some unique bonuses. We know the ethics bonus is quite popular. We've seen it in France with Neymar in France, who's playing for PSG. Ethics bonus can mean a lot of things. It could be behavior, it could be greeting people, could be the way you deal with fans. It's a very unique bonus, but it can be quite popular, especially for some players, but also clubs, to basically be able to promote that player and ensure that they follow the rules of the clubs. The other bonus is the relegation bonus. If a club is relegated or promoted, the bonus may be reduced because of that relegation or increased because of promotion. Now, there's also the sign-on or renewal of contract. This is very similar to the loyalty bonus. Basically, when a player is required by the club, then you really want to keep somebody or a new club really wants to transfer that player in, then a sign-on type bonus, a lump sum is very lucrative for the player, an incentive to sign, and the club can get their player they want. Now, also with bonuses, we also got to think about the effect of collective bargaining agreements. For example, in Italy, FA there, Serie A, there is one in force that regulates payments to players It regulates basic salary, and that must be paid at certain times, while it allows for bonus to be paid in different ways, depending on the player. So collectively, all the players have to be paid their salary monthly basis. That's the agreement, the collective bargaining agreement. So that gives flexibility to agents to try to generate more income for their player based on a bonus schedule in the contract. And the last one I want to focus on is we've seen it lately that bonuses are negotiated on data and analytics. Agents are starting to utilize data. They see importance in data so they can establish the true value of a player to the team. And this is based on reward for behavior, for success. We've also seen the Manchester City Chief Executive, Ferran Turan, I think I believe he's moved on, but he developed at FC Barcelona. He set up a very interesting approach in terms of bonus, the way it should be paid. Two thirds are fixed. That's the salary. And one third of the salary is variable based on success on the team and the player. This is a very interesting model and is developed by one of the finance directors. And we're seeing that a little bit more. The other thing is there's been increased financial regulation in the game. And with financial fair play, we're seeing a lot of that. So clubs sometimes don't want to have the high basic wages and are moving more towards an incentive-based model with players and building a contract around that. 
For the agents, you have to be flexible. You have to see the player, have they got the ability to meet a lot of those targets, especially the individual ones, and build your contract around that. It's not just about the salary. It's about the incentivizing the bonus structure. And we all need to be skilled as agents in that regard because variables, add-ons, bonuses, as I've just discussed now, are now very much a part of the wage structure and the incentive structure in player contracts. So that's my summary of bonuses. Bonuses for me are a double-edged sword. Maybe it's my old coach's hat on. I don't believe in a lot of bonuses. I believe in a team wins together and they lose together. And if you are a professional, you go out and do the job to the best of your ability, no matter if you're going to get a bonus for this, that or the other. And some people will scoff at that and some people will laugh at that, but it absolutely bewilders me. The other thing is that some of the national football agent regulations previously actually specified, and I take England as an example, non-guaranteed income for the player, the agent couldn't actually earn a commission off. So some agents might be reluctant to do that if they're totally self-interested. And we know, if we're honest, that a lot of people in the industry are self-interested. They're not interested primarily in the client. So we've got to look at what non-guaranteed income is. I would say in a footballer's career, non-guaranteed income is everything. It could be his salary two years down the line if he's sold in the next transfer window. That's non-guaranteed. So we really need to look at this. And even though it isn't as complex as arguably our friends over in the States and the NFL have to deal with, with caps and guaranteed income and non-guaranteed income, it's still quite complicated. The other thing is you mentioned the ethics bonuses, the good behavior bonuses. And I think that's a great thing for young players rather than fining them, actually encourage them to behave in the right way. And I think that's a great thing. And the first time I saw that was a very prominent high level Premier League club in the contract negotiation I was dealing in there. And it was a very welcome site and it worked well. Um, Salary increases and relegation clauses on promotion and relegation. I think you're more likely to see those where the difference in salaries between the leagues aren't as dramatic. I think it's one of the things that has been highlighted in England as a problem in the Premier League, that the clubs are so desperate to get players on board, they don't put relegation clauses in. And when relegation does bite, it puts the club in a very awkward situation with that player because the difference in revenues between the Premier League in England and the Championship is huge. So you might find it with a player in League One that should his club get promoted to Championship, he gets a salary increase. If they get relegated to League Two, he gets a salary decrease. And the final thing, and I'm going to be a bit contentious here, There has been cases where people have asked questions over bonuses come the end of the season. And it's seen rather strange selections on team sheets come the end of the season when there's nothing to play for. It's seen strange substitutions in matches where there again is nothing to play for. The result is already resolved and somebody miraculously comes on in injury time and never touches the ball. But it seems to be an appearance bonus that has been involved. So there's questions to ask there. I'm not a huge fan of bonuses unless they're for the right reasons. I know it's part of the sport. It's part of the game. I mean, it's part of the game between agents and clubs, players and clubs, so on and so forth. Very interesting observations. As you say, it's a two-edged sword. There are a lot of positives with bonuses, especially for players who are getting results, getting outcomes. 
drives a lot of their income, but also it can disadvantage clubs and can disadvantage players themselves. So that's where the agent needs to read the play and see where their player is at and where the club is at in order to get the best outcomes as bonuses. But it's a very important tool to implement within a negotiation and to ensure that if there is a bonus approach by clubs, how to negotiate that effectively And it's going to change as well, Peter. It's going to change with FFAR because depending on how that comes in and how it's implemented, agents are going to look at bonuses and think, right, okay, is the bonus beneficial here to the player more so or more so to me? Because if I'm capped, we don't know whether it will be capped as of yet. Supposedly it is under FFAR. That's going to throw a whole new complication into the system. It is, as are the aspect of other services that are outside the football agency representation of the employment contract. So it's, yeah, interesting times ahead. And so with that, I think it's an opportune time to end this episode of The Agents Angle, Peter, before we get dragged back into FFAR. Next week, our aim is to have a Rule K episode where we'll look more at the Rule K process Maybe by next week, if the guided date for a decision on the Rule K within England is reached, we should have a decision. However, as we mentioned before, it may be pushed back further. We have a very interesting interview next week with regards to Rule K that explains the process and may give an explanation as to why it's taken so long to get a decision. And also with the matter we discussed this week in regards to Tottenham, that should also give a bit of understanding what the Rule K process is and how it actually works. So remember, folks, it's much appreciated if you can like the podcast on the various podcast channels, whether it be Spotify, Google, Google, Amazon, or indeed Apple. And also, if you could leave a review. And also, if you have any questions, please send them in. So with that, it's goodbye from me for this week. Bye from me. Thank you for your support for over 20 episodes of the Agent Podcast. The purpose of the Agents Angle podcast is to provide news, information and facilitate discussion on regulatory matters, policies, business trends and issues affecting football agents worldwide. The opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and should never be considered legal or professional advice. Furthermore, the views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you for listening.